Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 103 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete podcast. This week, we sat down with Trailside Fitness owner and physical therapist, Lee Welton. And Lee has a wealth of knowledge and experience as a hiker. And uh, some of you may be scratching your head and saying, why is a strong, savvy cyclist and triathlete in need of a trailside fitness expert and physical therapist? Well, if you've worked with me for a number of years, or any of the last, really, 17 years, you know, especially if you're a long course or half Ironman triathlete, we do a good bit of hiking as part of your training. This has been something I've believed in uh, for almost two decades now, since I first experienced it when I was training for my never-to-be Olympic triathlon many, many years ago. And uh, essentially, uh, hiking and cycling and triathlon have a lot in common and a lot that they don't. And Lee and I are going to get into some of the weeds here a little bit. You're going to hear he has a fantastic well of knowledge, a lot of experience both as a trainer, uh, as strength coach, and as a physical therapist. And we're going to get into some details on some stuff that you probably didn't think about, or maybe you have, uh, if you subscribe to the HV Training YouTube channel, which by the way, I just found out today, someone in the gym asked me, you know, where they could find more information. I explained something to her about one of the exercises she was doing and she had a big, you know, breakthrough and she really enjoyed her workout more. She had a PR apparently, that's what I gather at least, or that's what she said. Uh, So I went to show her the HV Training YouTube channel and there's another that is HV Space Training. Uh, YouTube channel. So that is unbeknownst to me until now, and that is a heating and ventilation, apparently. Uh, That is not my channel. (laughs) Uh, So when you go over to YouTube, it's HV training, all one word, no spaces, and it will be uh, a really nice uh, logo of the Vortex with the uh, pastels there, and it say human vortex training. Uh, But back to today's episode with Lee, uh, we really get into a couple of details, and the reason I mentioned the YouTube channel at the beginning here, uh, or the first point, was uh, there's a a short foot exercise which is posted on the YouTube channel from back in early spring or mid-spring here, 2021, called the short foot exercise. So I would strongly recommend that you head on over to the YouTube channel and watch this video uh, because it's going to give you an insight as to some of the things that Lee and I talk about and connect, uh, not necessarily connect the dots, but kind of connect what he's talking about in principle and give you an action uh, to be able to go through and actually do it. So it's better power with the short foot exercise. This is April 21st, 2021. Uh, It is really, really simple, uh, but not easy. And and as you'll hear with Leon and I in the conversation, we do go down a couple technical rabbit holes, including the foot, the importance of the ankle, why hiking is so important for cyclists and triathletes, and understanding that just because you're really strong as a cyclist doesn't mean that you should go out and hike a bajillion miles, uh, you know, a two or three mile hike on a trail should be plenty for most of you. Uh, I know, you know, if you're not paying attention to how you pack your bag, uh, which by the way, there is a video up on the YouTube channel. Uh, there is a Brody Meets Brody series. So me and one of my longtime mentors, uh, Laser Brody, who is a health and fitness coach and 72 years old, uh, we teamed up because we wanted to share information with everybody uh, on the health and fitness spectrum, whether you're 20 and just starting or 57 and just starting or 78 and just starting. Uh, Laser and I go through a number of important considerations. Uh, it, we headed into the gym for our first episode. We talked about the importance of hypertrophy. Uh, The second we we talk about back pain, uh, we talk about nutrition. We cover a lot of different topics and and we come at it from the perspective uh, of myself having worked with elite athletes and and beginners. Uh, Most of the individuals I coach are recreational athletes, uh, recreational riders and triathletes who are looking to include strength training uh, with their swim, bike, run or their cycling to allow them to see better results and balance life and social commitments. Uh, And him as a 72-year-old health and fitness coach and uh, somebody who has that experience. And he's a strong dude. I mean, he really is. Um, When we, before we went to our first recording, 
uh, he was talking with the owners of the gym uh, who happened to be there. And the first thing I just hear Archie, and you've heard Archie here, by the way, Archie Coblin uh, owns the gym. He was back uh, in one of the episodes, we talked about the steel mace, but he just goes, Brody, halfway across the gym, Brody. Why didn't you tell me he had such a strong grip? He's like, how old is he? He's like, oh, I'm 72. And he's like, holy cow, you have amazing grip and you're moving so well. So we, we come at it and we share uh, both ends of the spectrum. And it's a very uh, flowing uh, video series. So I strongly recommend uh, you take a look at that. Again, that is on Mondays where you can find that. Uh, the Steel Mace with Archie was episode 34, which is a fantastic tool as well. Um, but the most important thing for today is to know that we're getting closer to the fall. Now is the time a lot of cyclists are going to have trouble and triathletes uh, trouble getting off the bike or out of their sport. And this is where hiking has become more popular from a lot of well-meaning coaches, or you've read about it. But Lee and I cover a couple different important considerations for you. He gives you fantastic take-homes to allow you to begin to enjoy hiking, be able to go out and do the things that you'd like to do on the trail improving or maintaining your fitness as a cyclist uh, and avoid common injuries that may happen uh, out on the trail. So make sure that you are heading over to Trailside Fitness. Check out his channel. He writes for a number of different places. Uh, he works with, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Outside Magazine, Backpacker Magazine. So he's got a lot of great content out there. So uh, make sure you are checking out the show notes after you give us a five-star rating and share us uh, with at least two people who you know need to hear this. So maybe they've tried hiking before and they got destroyed because they did too much. This is the episode for them. Last announcement before we get into the uh, episode here with Lee is I have a brand new program coming out, Strength Training for Cyclist Program. It's going to be the core training program. Uh, it's going to be primarily bands and body weight, and that's based off of the feedback that I got from those of you on the newsletter. Uh, I sent out a questionnaire asking, what exactly do you want? What are you looking for? How many days a week? So it'll be two with an optional third day a week of body weight and bands exercises uh, with explanations. There's also going to be a coach's version, uh, which will be available for CEUs from USA Triathlon and USA Cycling. Obviously, we have to submit and officially gain them, uh, but the uh, way it's been recorded so far is that you are going to have a coach's version where I'm going to explain the common mistakes as well as uh, give you a little bit more background behind each of the cycles, the training cycles, and why the exercises are ordered as they are. So this is kind of a hat tip to the Strength Training for Cyclist Certification course. Uh, it's different. Uh, it's going to be a much lower price point than that and available for anybody who would like either the athlete's version, which will just be the training plan. So you show up on the app, you click, you go through the workout, you see awesome results with these band and bodyweight exercises. Or as the coach, you have another version where you get all these uh, really great insights. I mean, the, the model, uh, I've been working with her quite a few times for some recordings, and she's like, wow, this is really, really interesting and really cool to see. So, uh, and she's a coach herself. So if she's saying that, I know that we're hitting it right on the head for those of you listening who are coaches and self-coach athletes. Now, without much further ado, let's get into today's episode, number 103, with Lee Welton of Trailside Fitness about hiking, cycling, triathlon, and the insider tips and things that you should know in order to use it to help you build fitness, not break yourself down. Lee, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thank you. Great to be here. Really excited to have you. I mean, we, we met in one of the, uh, I guess you'd call it trainings for top online coaches. And uh, you have a plethora and a very deep well, actually, I'd say, of, of training history and the ability to help hikers, backpackers, people that are going cross country to stay fit, healthy, and active. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your experiences up to this point? Yeah. So, um, I started trailside fitness, um, out of training to hike the Pacific crest trail. And for those not familiar with the Pacific crest trail, it's 2,750 miles that you hike from Mexico to Canada. Uh, it takes anywhere from, you know, five months, probably on average, uh, to get there. Um, in preparing to do that, um, I recognized there really wasn't any training programs available. There was really no self-care advice along the way. Um, my background is in physical therapy, working as a physical therapist assistant, and then as a personal trainer. Um, so I'm able to kind of use my platform to reach hikers and help them feel strong and comfortable for their hikes so they can enjoy it and not endure it. So you're coming at this with not only a, a personal trainer 
uh, approach, but as a, a hiker, backpacker, and a physical therapist. So I can't even imagine the amount of adventures <laughs> or misadventures that you've had uh, and help people through. Is there any one or two that really stick out where you're like, man, that completely changed how I look at my fitness and how I approach my training? Um, great question. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of hikers and, and people in general that when they think of endurance training, they're looking at, you know, I'll, you know, four or five sets and a lot of reps, 15 or 20 reps. And that's one way to get to it. And there's a lot of other ways to approach training where it doesn't require that type of training. Um, so I think just learning how to modify the programs I created for clients to fit in a shorter time span, work on the strength and the endurance piece together um, to really help folks feel like they're, they're strong and ready for their hikes. Um, I think that's probably been one of the bigger takeaways doing this job. And it's nice that I have this self-care piece kind of tucked in. Like I know how injuries are caused and know how to help hikers get around them using what they've got. Um, and that is all that experience from working in physical therapy and understanding the body and the, just the, the mechanics of the human body itself. So it, it sounds like you know, right now the cycling world has done this. It's all pendulums, right? So we go from one extreme to the other, but we went in essentially an overnight of about two and a half years from lightweight and high reps to lift heavy stuff. And it sounds like you see uh, your alarm bells are, have gone or would go off on that as well. Can you talk a little bit about how the, the preparation for trail hiking, backpacking and staying healthy and cycling are related and why it's not lift heavy stuff? Yeah. So, you know, I think if, if you're new to exercise, it makes sense that you're just going to Google, like, how do I train for nerve sports? And you're going to see, you know, high sets, high reps to get you prepared. And there's definitely some legitimacy in that training. Um, it's definitely going to help you as a new exerciser, someone who's maybe new to following a, a program kind of build up and, and prepare the body. But once you get to a certain point, like there's only so much time you have in a day and doing high sets and high reps takes a lot of time. Um, if you can do a concurrent training program where you're doing some heavy lifts and then taking a rest and in that rest space, you're doing some other exercises, thanks to strengthen the knee, strengthen the hips, ankles, shins, calves, go back to that heavy lift. So now we're targeting, uh, the bigger muscle groups, getting them good and strong. You're also addressing the tendon strength there as well. You're going to move into the, the other exercises that are going to cover, um, kind of those more commonly injured areas in these areas that have constant repetitions, whether it's cycling or hiking, it's probably lower leg and even some upper leg issues that are going to creep up. So if we can address a training program that kind of covers both things and is much more compact, way more efficient in terms of your time and your investment in that training piece. And you're not spending five days a week doing like ridiculous amounts of exercise. Like it's boring doing 20 plus reps for any exercise time after time after time. So I think the concurrent training program is what I've been using for hikers as of late. And that's been a great addition to um, one, build their confidence and feel kind of strong and ready to get out on the trail. You mentioned uh, as of late. So it sounds like as a coach and a trainer, you also have gone through uh, an evolution of sorts where what you're doing today is different. Maybe it still has pieces of what you've done before. Is there anything that you look back on and go, don't, why did I even bother doing that? <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, I think as a, as a coach and trainer, you're always looking at research and you're always kind of evolving your practice and trying to find the, the most evidence-based, but also what's most practical for your, your group of, of folks and training long hours isn't practical for a lot of people. Um, you know, I initially, when I first started my, my site is, Hey, look, if you've only got 20 minutes to work out, here's a workout you can do. And it was like a Tabata style workout. I'm not really a, a fan of Tabata for hikers in general, I think it's great for improving general, like physical, um, like awareness. And you're just like, you're improving your overall fitness, but it's not really going to translate well into hiking or cycling or anything that you're doing. Um, so initially I was like, all right, that's a good substitute. It's not perfect, but it's going to work. I haven't done Tabata for hikers and the probably since I started, I think I, there might be a couple of videos <laughs> lurking still out on YouTube and I keep them there just as, uh, Kind of, hey, if you're short on time, you still like doing high intensity exercises, here's one you can do for hiking. Um, but really the evolution is, you know, changed. It's been like, all right, well, short-term impact, high intensity workouts are not great. They don't, it's not really what hikers' bodies need. It doesn't translate well to the trail. And conversely, doing a really long workout, high reps, high sets, isn't probably the best fit either. But if you can combine the two into a really efficient workout that accomplishes all the things you need to, strength, endurance, a little bit of low, um, like submaximal cardio, 
and you're good to go. So I think just like everyone, it's just an evolution in um, my thought process, the research I'm reading, what I'm seeing, um, doing these exercises myself and seeing what works well and what doesn't, and then just applying that to my clients specifically. So it sounds like there's a, a, a lot of personalization that goes on. So you're not just, you know, a lot of coaches nowadays are evidence-based and they just follow the research blindly, whatever the conclusion was. It sounds like you're more the type of like, oh, that's interesting. I think this might work for Betty, but not for Stacy. Is that kind of how you look at things of like trying to figure out who the person is, how they're moving? Is, is that the process or is it more of uh, looking at the demands and then trying to figure out what to apply? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually a little bit of both. Um, so age is going to make a difference. You know, someone who's 20 versus someone who's 60, you can't give them the same program. The needs are different. The body's response is different. Recovery times are different. Um, so every client that I work with does get an individualized program based on their age, activity level, what their goal is. You know, are they hiking 50 miles or are they hiking 2,650? So really taking those variables, putting them together and coming up with the best program that's going to fit them and their schedule to make sure that they're getting ready for their adventure. That's awesome, man. And that sounds very similar to cyclists and triathletes as well. And there's a lot more crossovers. We were kind of talking before we hit record here and hiking and cycling. Uh, I know triathletes, I've been sending triathletes for hikes for years, but seeing how that impacted their cycling more than their running, I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And then started doing it with the cyclists. And at first, most cyclists go, huh, you want me to hike? That has nothing to do with my sport. But actually, it, there's a very big crossover between those two sports. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, really, most sports be moving in, which is forward. Um, so what's going to happen there is your hips, your legs, your calves, ankles, everything is working consistently in one plane of motion, um, whether it's hiking or cycling. So tons of the same exercises that you would do for hiking are going to work perfectly for cyclists there. Um, recovery is going to be the same injuries that you're going to see are going to be the same because it's a really repetitive one motion exercise. So training for, you know, cyclists are going to train for hiking, hiking can use the, the bike to also kind of work on their training piece. It's a perfect marriage of the two. Um, cyclists a lot of times are a little lower bone density because they spend so much time on the bike and they're not getting that ground impact. So if we can get them off the bike and on the ground, that can help increase the bone density there. And then hikers on the other side, they're spending a lot of time on their feet. It's nice to get off the feet a little bit, do some cycling, some rowing, some swimming, something a little more low impact to help them prepare for their sport. Um, you know, exercises, you know, squats, deadlifts, lunges, you know, all those things are going to be in that same movement pattern again, which is straight out in front. And, you know, one way to help reduce injuries is to move in other directions. So, you know, a lot of the hikers that I'm working with, I've got them doing lunges out to the side or maybe using diagonal, you know, so up in front or out and back in a diagonal pattern, um, using some rotation in there, getting them to move in different directions to help really build a more bulletproof body for hiking. And then on the backside, we're looking at recovery and self-care, like, you know, injuries that cyclists and hikers are going to see are going to be similar. It's going to be sore or numb feet. It's going to be calves, chins, um, low back, even shoulders. You know, hikers are spending a lot of time, you know, hunched forward at the end of the day with rounded shoulders because their pack's heavy and they're fatigued. Cyclists, man, that's a pretty similar position. You're hanging on the bars, your head's up. It's going to be a lot of the similar tightness and issues that uh, hikers are going to see. So addressing the recovery piece for cyclists and hikers, again, looks pretty similar. Well, let's dive into that because that's a big area. You know, my, my filler or my, uh, my specific exercises that are the rest periods, essentially active rest periods for, for the big lifts tend to be focused on, you know, essentially helping people move better. So we'll have a breathing exercise or a, a tissue length exercise. There is a lot of similar challenges for cyclists and hikers, as you mentioned, with the forward head posture, the rounded shoulders. Can you talk a little bit about if a cyclist is listening or a triathlete and they say, you know what, this dude, Lee is killing it. And I totally am on board. I understand that these two sports are very similar. I'm going to grab my backpack and head out the window or out, out, the, out the window. I hope they don't have out the window, <laughs> out the door. <laughs> um, what are a couple considerations that cyclists and triathletes should make before they head out for a hike um, that maybe they don't know that they should take? Uh, mileage is going to be key and elevation is going to be key. So, you know, a lot of the injuries that happen to hikers are overuse injuries and they happen earlier in the season. 
it's from a, just doing that period of inactivity or changing sports. So they're going more from like a weightlifting in the winter. Now it's spring, they're going to head outdoors. Cyclists are going to be in the same boat. They're going to think, Hey, I'm doing great. I'm six or seven miles in no problems. They're going to turn around and head back. And now you're at a 12 mile day, which is a pretty reasonable day for someone who isn't really used to hiking. You can expect, you know, maybe some front of the shin pain, maybe some calf issues, maybe the knees hurt going downhill. And really that's all information that uh, cyclists can take um, and, and move into the recovery piece or think, Hey, why do my knees hurt when I go downhill? How can I address that in with my cycling? Um, I think if we're, if you're new to hiking and you want to get out, I would start with a shorter hike with lower elevation, see how you feel, right? This isn't about trying to get as many miles as you can. It may be more, Hey, I'm going to do five miles today. See how I feel tonight, tomorrow, maybe the next day. And if I feel good, then that's a sign. I think I can go ahead and progress either adding more elevation or more distance to kind of find that sweet spot with what's going to be beneficial in terms of, uh, time and mileage for that workout versus doing too much out the gate having all sorts of pain injuries and injuries and issues that are going to come up that are now going to negatively impact either the rest of your training or cycling from there out. There's so much there. Let me start at like a more basic one because there that, that's really deep, right? So you just gave about 15 different nuggets. <laughs> so I encourage the listeners go back and, and listen again, because everything he's talking about uh, are really major points that a lot of people, we, we think of it, but we don't really internalize like, Hey, this is similar. We just think, Oh, I'm cross training. And I can go hike for, you know, my, my cardiovascular system can handle four hours on the bike, no problem. And I can go do a two hour hike, but there's a lot of stabilization. I know that's a big word. You know, I need, I need to work on my balance and my stability as cyclist. Can we talk a little bit about how we can address that as cyclists to help us be able to get more out of our hiking and, and not increase our risk of injury by heading out? Yeah. So, you know, if you're um, looking specifically at balance and using some of those stabilizer muscles that are going to really translate well, uh, from cycling to hiking. Um, I think you, you hit it perfect, right? Like in that gap of doing exercises, taking a break, working on some sort of stability piece, um, for hiking, the demands are going to be pretty similar. You might need some quicker footwork if you're crossing a stream, crossing that kind of thing, a little less applicable to cyclists there. Uh, but balance is going to be key, you know, standing barefoot, you know, working on, um, just regular single leg balance. There's all sorts of things that that's going to benefit further up the, the body. Um, any kind of stability work or core work, even like farmer carries, um, single handed carries are going to really benefit cyclists as well as hikers in terms of, um, core strength and core stability. Um, uh, sorry, is that kind of like what you were asking there or did I kind of miss the question? No, no, that's it. You know, exactly. We want to try and, and go through and, and just kind of understand the demands are different, right? So even though there are a lot of similarities, because what a lot of, a lot of us do, myself included, you know, it's not you, the listeners do. I, I've done it. Trust me. I've done lots of stupid stuff when it comes to training. <laughs> oh, let me give myself a, a hernia at the age of 19 by drawing my stomach in my, because it's such a good idea. And that's what the research says. Duh. Even though my coach was like, dude, dude, if you do that, I'm kicking you out of the weight room. Okay, you're not here today. I'm going to do it anyhow. Um, but a lot of people look at it like, oh, well, it's similar. So I can go out and do this. But you're mentioning, you know, footwork uh, not being re related for cyclists. But I found that, you know, for most of us, and actually, especially the professionals, there's a time and a place, right? So um, for those who have a busy schedule in, in the winter in Pittsburgh, I actually remember uh, prescribing ballroom dancing lessons for a triathlete because they, they just needed to move all the time. And I'm like, dude, you, you, the coordination is not there. Yeah, you can run forward, no problem, but there's no stability. So let's do something fun that's gonna challenge you differently. So maybe it's not sport specific, but it can certainly help. Um, when it comes to, to the training itself though, so you mentioned uh, how the, the knees need to stabilize, the foot needs to stabilize crossing a stream. What are some of the considerations, or, or let me rephrase that how do we take these considerations into our training? Is this where we need to do squats and then 15 different exercises? Or is there a way that we can simply put it into our program and, and get it done in 45 minutes instead of spending, you know, an hour and a half? Yeah. So, you know, if we're looking at that break in between doing a, a, an exercise, that's maybe a heavier weight for fewer reps and then moving into some stability exercises. You know, I think the perfect place to start there is with the foot, because that's going to really affect everything further up the chain. 
So if you're standing barefoot and working on balance and barefoot would be most ideal for balance, your foot is so nerve rich that if you're standing in a shoe or even wearing a sock, you're not going to get nearly as much uh, benefit for your time working on balance as you would barefoot. So being barefoot and then working on the tripod. So the ball under your big foot is down, kind of the pinky side is down and your heel is down. Keeping those three points of contact is really going to affect a lot of stuff further up the leg. It's going to help make sure that the knee is in the right position. It's going to help make sure the hip is nice and stable, which is going to affect the low back. And then just kind of work on posture all the way up. If you're not really addressing balance in the foot side of things, that foot's going to collapse, which is going to bring the knee inward, and that's going to affect the hip negatively. That's certainly going to affect cycling power. It's going to affect uh, walking mechanics or running mechanics. So, you know, in that little space you've got between the bigger exercise and then that rest phase where now we're addressing some of these smaller things, you know, working on foot strength and balance is a perfect way to really address some of these issues that are going to trickle all the way up into uh, like full posture, we're talking power output, just movement mechanics in general. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I found with cyclists, you know, we stuff our, sh our, our feet into these super stiff shoes. Now there's the metatarsal button that, that uh, specialized in Dr. Pruitt kind of uh, brought out for the inserts, which has completely changed the game. Then you had uh, uh, e-soles for a while. And one of my favorite exercises to give is either uh, a version of short foot where you're trying mm. to activate all three of the, the major arches because there's what, seven or eight arches, I think, across the bottom of the foot. You have longitudinal, medial lateral, and then you have, um, I can always, never remember the last one, but those are the three big ones. Uh, or a version of what uh, Dr. Casey Hill calls uh, toe yoga. So activation of flexion, mm. extension, uh, big toe. How how have you found hikers respond to that or cyclists? Is, is that something where you see, you give it to them and, and you're like, man, this is so important to you to do this. It's not just the balance work. And they, they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they come back and you're like, man, dude, like what happened? And they're like, oh, it's too silly for me. Have you had that at all? Yeah. Uh, I think the, the concept and the practice of it is fantastic. It's getting the buy-in that's really difficult there. Uh, people don't really see the connection. Uh, and I'm talking like, you know, me as a beginner, I didn't really see the connection either, um, between like toe yoga and how that's going to affect the rest of my power output. But there's a big disconnect between the foot not working right. And the rest of your body having to try and figure out how to stabilize because your foot's not working. Right. Um, so I can give some of these exercises to hikers. Some of them respond to it well and they do it, but realistically, most people get frustrated. Toe yoga is hard. Like trying to get your brain to talk to your foot and make your, just your big toe move is easy in theory, but man, it's really tough in practice. Um, it's something I've been working on continually and I'm getting better at it, but it's, it's so frustrating that it's easy to just give it up quickly. Your brain actually has a separate part that's designed just to handle the big toe movement itself. And the, the four toes aren't really that, that way. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's amazing that your body has got just one area that's dedicated to just the big toe. And this really is like a use it or lose it scenario. When it comes to that big foot, you can reestablish some of that connection with your big toe. Uh, it just takes a lot of practice. And the reason this is so important is because if that big toe is not actively working when you're uh, cycling or even walking, um, that's going to change how it, uh, signals your body to move. So, um, if you think about it, when you take a step, the last thing to leave your ground is the big toe, that big toe pushing off is what's going to signal the hip muscles to move and kind of swing your leg back behind you. So if that big toe is up in the air, you know, we may not be activating the glutes quite as much as we want and moving as efficiently as we could be. So even in the deadlift, if your big toe is down or squat, if your big toe is down, that's a signal to your brain that, okay, if the big toe is down, I need to make sure and engage my hips fully. And I've got all the support and stability I need to do that versus that big toe being up. And now the body's like, mm, you know what? I need to use glutes to stand back up, but uh, I've also got to do some other stability stuff because I'm not feeling as comfortable and as confident in this movement as I need to be. That big toe is just not doing what it needs to do. So, you know, in terms of mechanics and movement as a whole, having that foot be in full contact with the ground and the big toe engaged, all those arches doing what they need to do, that's a green light for the body to just say, okay, all systems are go, let's do this. Versus maybe more of like a yellow light or red light scenario. If the toes are up and the big toe isn't really down and you're kind of like all over the place with your feet, 
your body's gonna be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, there is way too much going on that is not really working right now. And it's either gonna create an injury, it's gonna limit your power output. Um, it's really gonna make your workout less efficient because your body is too busy trying to stabilize and do things that it doesn't really want to do during that exercise when it could be much more efficient by having your foot nice and strong, planted and stable. Yeah, that, that buy-in is so difficult, you know, and the one that seems to get across uh, the last eight to 12 months here for, for me, and I'm, I'm curious as to if you found this as well, is specifically there's been a big focus on women-specific training, right? So postpartum fitness, the pelvic floor, and a lot of people may not realize that the muscles of the pelvic floor are also your deep hip rotators. And if you don't have good activation uh, in, in that section of the brain for the big toe, that that affects the pelvic floor. So all those muscles, like I've seen a number of cyclists uh, who well-meaning physical therapists, and, and I'm not a physical therapist. I've just messed up enough times to, to recognize some certain trends uh, have said, oh, well, you have piriformis syndrome. It's like, no, it's in the area, but you're, it's very clear when you're trying to do a squat or a deadlift with just you know five pounds in your hand, that your pelvic floor is just locked up. And you have once you have that, now that micro movement at, at the foot, that shift of a millimeter, half a millimeter in the arch isn't happening. So now that's essentially two centimeters at your pelvic floor and your hips and five centimeters at your shoulders. And that's where things are coming from. Have you seen a buy-in based off of that kind of like the, the, the deep hip muscles aren't working because the toe isn't working and the toe isn't working because the deep hip does has that helped you at all? Or this is completely new. And, and that's just me and my little corner of the world. Yeah, certainly a, a, the hip is really complex and nuanced and, you know, postpartum is not really my specialty. There is a big component with, um, pelvic floor health and your pelvic floor and your diaphragm really do work together. Um, and that foot stability piece certainly does affect what's happening at that pelvic floor. You mentioned earlier, if that foot arch collapses, that brings the knee inward. The other end of that knee is your hip. So now your hip is internally rotating or moving inward a little bit. That's going to affect how your body needs to stabilize the hips and the low back itself. So now if your body is trying to do all these other compensations, instead of just letting the muscles be their natural resting length, have the strength and the support, that's certainly going to impact movement throughout the body. You know, piriformis syndrome is one of those like super common things that's thrown out. Like, oh, I got sciatica, you know, okay. Like that's a really broad term. And there's a lot of things that can play into what is actually sciatica, you know, itself. That piriformis muscle is a pretty unique one because it changes what it does depending on the angle of your hip. It's an external rotator, which means it kind of would bring your toes like to the outside or move your leg kind of rotated outward. But once you get to about 90 degrees, it shifts and it now becomes an internal rotation stabilizer. So it's changing function. As a cyclist, you're going through all sorts of different hip motion, and that's going to change what that piriformis muscle is doing in terms of um, its work capacity throughout that, that cycle. Same with hikers. The sciatic piece that comes in for a lot of folks uh, is going to be a little bit different. Is it generating from the low back or is it coming from a piriformis muscle that might be, I don't want to the term because most people know that, but really it's getting a signal from the brain to, to kind of stay active, to provide more stability through a, a broader range of motion for some reason that could be ankle motion loss or hip motion loss. And the, you know, looking more specifically at sciatica itself, the, the nerve is pretty thick. It's about as thick around as your pinky. Like that sciatic nerve is massive as it comes down through the, the glutes and the piriformis attaches kind of from your, um, your tailbone over to your, your leg bone. Cause it's not super big, but it's a really critical piece of the puzzle. That static nerve is either going to run under over or through that, that piriformis muscle. And I forget the percentages, but it like for most people that static nerve is under, um, the smaller percentage of people, it's like on top of the piriformis muscle. So it's less of an issue, but for the folks that that piriformis muscle has a static nerve running through it and under it, those are going to be the ones where now if that muscle is tight and stabilizing more, you're going to have in there. That might be true. Like piriformis syndrome, less sciatica, um, for cyclists in that, that sciatic piece itself, it's, you know, can be a lot of that position forward. You know, we're putting a lot of stress and strain on the low back. It's a long position that you're in. So the body's going to get used to being in those shapes. So um, 
now if you're out of that shape, your body's like, ah, this is less comfortable as an upright human. And I'm more comfortable like hunched forward as a cyclist or, you know, if a hiker, you know, if your position is bad and you're, you know, walking five months in one position, uh, the body's going to get more used to those, those, those things. So now we move and look at like, how do we, how do we shift and adjust to make these, the piriformis less problematic, make the, you know, pelvic floor work better, reduce, uh, sciatic issues. And a lot of that comes into self-care. So stretching, um, any sort of recovery piece we're doing with ball work, foam rollers, you know, uh, ballroom dancing, working on foot strength, all these little pieces that really work to give you a much more solid foundation. Want to learn more? Check out humanvortextraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest. And those are the types of things that I, I really appreciate about hiking for cyclists, right? And you, you hit on a big one with the piriformis syndrome. And I apologize. I kind of led you there. I kind of wanted to, to, to get that covered a little bit because there's so many people that are well, so many. I'm getting a couple emails the last couple of weeks. Oh, I was told I have piriformis syndrome. Uh, can you send me a picture of you on the on the uh, on the trainer with your your knee up at 90 degrees and at the bottom of the pedal stroke? And they're very crammed up and that piriformis essentially is not getting a chance to uh, fully work. And it's, it's stuck in that internal rotator or internal rotator aid. And the adductors are so shut down. They're so tight. Um, a lot of people like to blame the hip flexors. And this is an area where I can see hiking being a great addition, but also if you're not careful with how you're doing it and you get too aggressive with it, it can, it seems like to me, open you up to a higher risk of injuries because now these muscles who have been working in this limited range of motion now have to work through their full range of motion. And you're probably carrying a backpack with, you know, five, 10 pounds worth of stuff in there. How can, or is there a way that the folks at home can do a simple screen or an exercise or a movement to kind of just get a quick and dirty, like, Hey, hiking is probably a good idea for you. If it's just on a, a, a cut trail and nothing too crazy versus, Hey, you know what? You can probably go out and with the right people do a fairly decent, you know, 600 feet of vertical climbing in five miles kind of hike. Um, you know, as far as like quick and dirty tests, I mean, a step test. So you would just have like maybe a, a box that's 12 inches high you can set a timer for 10 minutes, step up on the box as many times as you can, multiply your steps by that step height. And that's going to give you roughly how much elevation you've done. Um, you know, if you were actually out on a, so that could be like one test, like, okay, I did, you know, 400 steps at, you know, 12 inches. It's going to give you your, your rough elevation climb. If that completely cooked you, you're probably not ready for a really big, massive hike. Uh, I think, doing that test is one, it's good. Cause it's going to give you a little test of your cardio. Like, okay, this step test is really hard. And two, like, man, my quads are hurting from doing this um, versus, you know, maybe just like heading out the door and going for a hike and just trying to throw a dart and see like, okay, this hike looks fun. It's 13 miles. And then there's a cool lake, like we'll do it and be fine. Um, you know, I think if you're, if you're looking at uh, trying to assess like what would be a good, indicator for like you being ready to hike uphill or downhill. Um, another test you could do would just be a simple single leg raise. So you just stand on one foot with that nice, strong, stable foot, and then raise your other leg up. Like you're doing a March. How high can you raise that leg? Is it 90 degrees? Is it above or below? How's your stability where you're there? Are you really uneven? Are you grabbing onto the wall for support? Um, that can be an indicator that maybe those hip flexors are a little bit weak that we can address balance or we can work on foot strength. Um, and all those things can be addressed with the hiking side. It, you know, the muscle muscles are interesting. If they're, you know, they can be short and strong, they can be long and strong, or they can be their normal resting length and be strong in either direction. And when we have any sort of injury or the body's compensating somehow, generally the brain is going to send a signal to that muscle to stay short and tight or active or engaged. And over time, that signal starts to become the dominant one for the muscle it wants to stay there. So it may be strong there, but it doesn't have that range of motion that it needs. Um, you can have a muscle that's long and maybe uh, like it's lengthened position. And it's a little less strong there than it needs to be because it doesn't have the ability to really contract and, and move whatever limit needs to move properly. So in terms of 
like injury and moving well, ideally your muscle is in its normal resting position. It can lengthen and it can shorten uh, and have strength throughout that range. If we're talking about the piriformis specifically, and it's getting a signal from the brain to activate and stay short and stabilize. Now, when you go to stretch that muscle out or you're asking it to do something different, it's like, ah, uh, I don't know. Like I'm kind of getting a signal. I should be tight and stabilized for a different reason. And that's where like the injury uh, recovery piece or maybe a corrective exercise comes in to help that muscle and the brain kind of work on a trust exercise to say, okay, piriformis, let's get you back to what you need to do by shrinking the pieces that you're trying to stabilize. And then you can go back to your, your regular programming, right? You can do whatever you need to do. The body is incredible as a, as a compensator. It's got a lot of backup programs in case things go wrong. You know, if you're you know, shoulders hunched forward and you're breathing kind of funny, your body is going to do different things to try and get you to breathe. It might use more neck muscle to raise the rib cage up, which is less efficient. It's a great little backup program, but man, over time that can cause all sorts of issues with like numbness, you know, down the arms and fingers. Um, so if you are in these positions and you can open that chest back up a little bit, lengthen those muscles, get them back to what they need to do and strengthen the supporting muscles so they can actually help your rib cage move better. You use less of the backup program and get back to the main program that your body has in place, which really is kind of like long-term, Hey, I'm moving well in my sport. I'm managing my self care and I'm working to undo the positions that I'm in a lot of the time with training or sport. Again, listeners stop right there, go back, rewind because Lee just hit a whole bunch of stuff. Um, like we're talking about the, the ability of the muscles to, to stabilize, uh, they can be long and strong, short and, and strong. And this kind of ties back to, to one of the pieces that I've really tried to educate people on. And that is a muscle has three jobs in the body. Number one, first and foremost is to protect a joint. Number two, stabilize a joint while an adjacent joint moves. And then the last one is to move the joint. And so many people get stuck on, you know, the muscles tight. So I got to stretch it you know, whether it's dynamic or static, and, and I'm not really a big fan of static. I, I think there's two types of uh, people that should do static stretching. Those are the age of 40 who are losing range of motion because of static postures, but then they need to combine it with a, a activation exercise or, or a movement that will strengthen the lengthen muscle uh, and ho help open that up. And those who are post-surgical, like when I had my shoulder, one of the best things, uh, and, and also for, for my knee and my ankle, each one of my surgeries, one of the most uh, pleasurable times of the PT was when they were stretching the muscles that had gotten tight to protect because of those injuries. But that only lasted two to four weeks post-op. And it was after, as soon as I could, it was combined with the strengthening exercise. Can we talk a little bit about uh, essentially when people look at, at tight muscles, like you just talked about two easy ways for them to, to go through and look at the, the standing straight leg raise. So kind of like a, a single leg zombie raise uh, for the leg, if you will, or a straight leg march. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to mind when you're describing that is the number of cyclists and triathletes who go, oh, my hip flexors are too tight. I got to stretch them. And then they'd round their back to get that. Like, look, I got the range of motion. How do we know, or is there a way for us to know when we should stretch and when we should strengthen or activate opposing muscles? Um, hmm, good question. You know, I think a lot of times when you're, especially like hip flexors, their opposing muscle group is the glutes. Um, one flexes, one extends. And, uh, you know, for, for cyclists, a lot of times the, the hip flexors and it, for hikers who are runners, those hip flexors are actually weak. They may feel tight, but really they just might need strength. Um, and doing something as simple as like maybe a light kettlebell, you know, on top of your like you stick your foot through the handle of the kettlebell and do like some weighted kettlebell lifts is a great way to strengthen specifically those hip flexors. But the key is not flexing the back. Like you mentioned, right? Like how does your posture look? Are you, you look like, are y'all dumped over and trying like, yeah, I got it up there. It's really high. Like, cool. We're all competitors and we want to do the best we can. And as I would see it a lot in PT, like people are just like all over the place trying to like impress me as a, you know, the therapist. I'm like, ah, it's not really what I want. Like I want you to, to show me control and strong posture through the range of motion. Uh, let's look at um, how that strength piece is. Let's look at how well you move. And then we can assess, okay, is it weak? Is it tight? Is it, is it both? Um, you know, for the glutes, you know, I think a lot of times there's this like, you hear the term glute amnesia, which is 
not really efficient. Like the glutes work all the time. They're, your, your butt is fine. It may need more strength. Um, but as a cyclist, you're sitting down. So you're not really like, um, maybe the thought is like, well, you're, uh, because you're sitting the glutes aren't working. Well, guess what? Something's helping to bring that leg around. And it's more than just the hamstrings and the calves. You like your glutes are working. Um, the, if the glute muscles are, um, or excuse me, if the, if the hip flexors on the front side are really tight, a lot of times the signal from the brain that is going to tell the glutes they need to extend and do their work, that signal is going to get robbed a little bit by the hip flexors, which are tight. So, uh, because the body will send the signal to the kind of the more dominant of the two groups, you've got those, you know, one flexing and one extending that the flexor side is going to get more of that, that signal, which may limit how effective the glutes are able to work. In that case, we may look at, okay, let's do a stretch, say a couch stretch, for example, like Kelly Threat has that great couch stretch that has kind of taken over the last few years with good reason. It's fantastic. It stretches all the hip flexors on the front of your hip, that iliopsoas complex, the, the rectus femoris, that long quad on the front side. I mean, it's a perfect stretch. If you get in that stretch position and you find yourself on the floor, not even able to bear trust right, guess what? You're probably tight in the hip flexors and you could probably use a little bit of strength in there as well. You know, tying back into that, hey, if a muscle is long, it, it may be less strong, uh, or if it's short and tight, it may also need strength there and that elongating piece. All those things are gonna tie into like power output and, and movement efficiency, especially when it comes to like cyclists and triathletes or hikers who are looking to maximize their movement. Unlocking some of those pieces is going to be super important to make sure that you're staying injury free and you're getting where you're going in one piece. Well, you bring up uh, gluteal amnesia. Sorry, I had a trouble with the mute button there. My kiddo's getting fed right next door here. So <laughs> a little bit loud here. Um, you know, gluteal amnesia, a lot of people throw that around just like piriformis. And, and if you actually do the research and, and you read, um, uh, that was termed by Jonda. And uh, this Dr. Stuart McGill, uh, one of my mentors and, and someone I've followed for years and, and has helped myself is the gluteal amnesia that as he's relating to it is more of the lack of the, the motor control from the brain to be able to to access it and access hip extension. And the reason that's a problem is because the head of the femur is now sitting to the back of the acetabulum. So you've lost joint space uh, and it makes it a, a much more challenging environment. And the joint position, which dictates muscle function is, is all lost. So the gluteal amnesia, as Jonda actually was talking about it, uh, and, and what I've understood in, in my years of, of digging into it, is the loss of the glutes to work in proper coordination. So like you said, the glutes are always working. So I think a lot of therapists want to try and get through uh, and coaches, well-meaning, want to get through. They're like, oh, you have gluteal amnesia. It's like, well, no, the glutes are still working. Otherwise, you'd be on the floor or bent over, like you said, <laughs> in a hunched over position. You wouldn't be able to, and you wouldn't be, you'd be essentially walking like, God forbid, you have two peg legs because you wouldn't be able to have that, that protection of the joint and, and forward locomotion. But it also ties into to the uh, couch stretch because I see tons of people when I was coaching CrossFit for five years, oh yeah, this feels great. And really the rec fem was the offending party. It wasn't the hip flexors. They're getting this huge L3, L4 uh, hinge as their hips are rotated into serious anterior. They're like, oh yeah, it feels good. They stand up, they're like, oh, my back hurts. Like I must've done something during the lift. A lot of cyclists I feel like would be very... Um, in that high risk category for that. So how, how do they determine, like, is it a quad issue? And then we need to work on getting the glutes to fire a little bit more in, in proper coordination, or is this a bigger issue that they need to dive into? Like, how do we differentiate that if it's possible to do at home or, or do they need a therapist like yourself? You know, sometimes seeking, you know, a physical therapist or a personal trainer that can assess that in person is going to be a really effective way to go. One, it helps to just kind of streamline your next steps. You can say, okay, well, so there's a standard Thomas test. You would stand at the edge of a treatment table or a bed, grab one leg, kind of bring it to your chest and lay it back on the table. So the leg that is not being hugged to your chest, what's it doing? Is, is it up in the air? Is it flat on the table? What is your shin doing? Is your shin away from the table or is it just kind of like resting kind of comfortably? The position of that shin relative to this Thomas test uh, will tell us if the hip flexors are tight and probably more specifically that rectus femoris is the issue. 
but that's a like a really simple like hey something is tight and it, we're going to call it hip flexors um i think if you're going to do that self-assessment then the couch stretch would probably be the next best thing to try because okay the hip flexors are tight Couch stretch is going to address those hip flexors let's do that and see how things feel keeping in a nice strong position with this hip this couch stretch um if it's more hip flexors, yeah, it's a little different, a little harder to parse out there, I think, um, like at home. At least a therapist can watch you move. They can add it in with some other variables, other movement screens that they're doing to see if maybe it is more specifically hip tightness, like uh, iliopsoas, or if it's um, lack of lumbar flexion or extension, or if it's you know hip flexor tightness, like the rectus femoris. So uh, in some cases, it may be best to just get a quick movement screen from a PT, have them say, okay, this is what I see going on. Here's some things you can try. Come back in a couple of weeks. If things aren't, you know, if, if things have not progressed or it's not hitting the mark, we'll adjust some stretches and exercises and then and go from there. Well, you mentioned something that I think is very foreign to a lot of people is, is they look at physical therapists as being there when there is a problem, but you're talking about kind of accessing them and, and trainers as a consultant for a, a one-off. How do, how do we start to wrap our heads around the mind frame of, well, I actually have access to more self-care and I'm actually able to manage and access uh, this care to help me manage the aches and pains. How do we start to, to look at that or, or how should the listener start to think, I have more access to self-care things than I realize and, and it's not going to be as a limiter. I don't have to hire a physical therapist for 10 treatments or a personal trainer for a year to see results. You know, I think if you're uh, someone at home who's really active, you're doing a lot of training by yourself. I, for me, the best thing has been that um, the supple leopard that Kelly Starrett, you know, he's got a ton of free stuff out there that really is kind of a great owner's guide for the body. A lot of the self-care techniques I use for hikers, I've adopted some of those um, particular mobilizations or stretch things into the, the hikers world and cyclists can benefit a ton from these different positions as well. Um, I know Kelly's worked with Levi Leipheimer uh, specifically as well as some other cyclists and triathletes. Um, really, if you're someone who's looking at self-care, a resource like that is huge. You can hop in there, you can go down the rabbit hole of um, hip function, foot, knee, calf, shoulder, like whatever your issue is. And you can address some of these things yourself. And if you exhaust those list of options and you're not excellent information, when you go to your physical therapist, who really should be part of your self-care team, you get a massage. Great. You should also see a physical therapist or work with a personal trainer to iron out some of these, um, smaller pieces of your training program. If you're really serious as an athlete, um, if you go to your physical therapist and you say, Hey, I jumped into this website. I was doing this hip mobilization. I did these stretches. I did this and I'm still having pain. Your PT is like, Oh, okay. Awesome. Like this guy gets it. This girl gets it. They've taken the bull by the horn. They've done some of these things to see any change. Now that helps me as a, a clinician, uh, come up with the right exercises, the right mobilizations, or, uh, maybe guide my thought process a little bit. It's like, okay, he's tried this, this, and this, it didn't work. I still want to see you move in those positions and see if they're being done correctly, um, or how you're compensating. And then we can adjust things further. And I think as, as people who are really active visiting a PT two or three times a year should just be part of your self-care, like getting a, a follow-up from your doctor. You know, they can watch you move, especially if you're in a single plane sport, you know, like running, for example, you know, they're going to be able to give you a lot of exercises to help make sure the hips are nice and stable or that your, your foot is working while your balance is good. Or if mid-back is tight, they can give you some things to kind of unlock that mid-back and then some exercises to help strengthen and keep you in those um, better positions as opposed to just being chronically, you know, tight and in a position that is less functionally um, advantageous. So uh, yeah, I mean, Absolutely. Like we'd have people come into the PT clinic I worked at and just get kind of a tune up. They come in, I was hiking, I had some knee pain. Um, did something that called exercises, but can take a look and see what's going on. We could give them a quick assessment, walk through some stuff, do some exercises, and then send them on their way. And then with the, the open end, like, hey, come back and see me if you have any questions, shoot me an email. Um, we'll see if we can, you know, progress or regress an exercise based on the feedback that you're giving me. 
but really having access to like the online YouTube world is great. If you're following sources that are really on top of their game, like Kelly Strett, who's got tons of hours and, and resource and time put into this and has just seen so many different folks come through that they really have dialed in and pinpointed their audience. And for you as a consumer, I think that is huge. You can pop it in there, type in tight hips and just, man, you can spend your day doing hip stuff. Um, and then, like I said, follow that up with a visit to a PT or a personal trainer if you're not seeing results that you are hoping to see, where now they can assess you a little bit further and actually see you move or maybe put hands on you and assess how things are, are moving uh, overall. What you're saying is, is that even those of us who are doing it recreationally should still have essentially our own personal sports medicine team around us. 100%. Yeah, I think we all need some sort of a, a healthcare team. Um, so a lot of the hikers I work with, they're seeing a massage therapist or they're seeing another personal trainer for like live sessions and they're doing my online programming or you know, however it's working out. And really it's all collaborative. Um, a lot of the folks that I work with may also be coming off an injury, total knee or total hip replacement. So they've got some PT exercises or they're still working with their personal trainer or their, excuse me, their physical therapist. And then uh, I get to them, I'll ask them what exercise they're doing, kind of modify uh, my exercises or just reinforce whatever that therapist or their program they're currently doing is. It really does, you know, take a lot of different eyes and different approaches to make sure you're getting what you need. You know, if you go to a chiropractor, they're going to say, well, we got to, you know, do some adjustments and then send you on your way. If you go to a surgeon, they're going to say, well, yeah, maybe there's an issue in there that we could do surgery for. You see a physical therapist, they're going to say, hey, we could do some movement stuff here and maybe some exercises to reinforce it. And really, if you're taking a more global approach, you're going to take all those pieces and put them together to make sure that you're getting what you need. Yep, you might have a, uh, a need to see a chiropractor, but are you following up that adjustment with a corrective exercise or some sort of strengthening to help keep that adjustment uh, and make it more efficient long-term versus like, I just, I got to go see him twice a week and get adjusted because that's, you know, the, the protocol. Maybe that's what you need. Need, but my guess is there's along with that. And that's where like my lens and my view comes in and says, okay, if you're constantly getting your mid-back adjusted, let's do some mid-back strength to help give your body some support it needs to do that. And now you're getting that full rounded approach. The chiropractor can say, okay, let's adjust you here. Personal trainer is going to say, great. I see some movement issues we can address and some strength issues we can do here. And then if you go to a massage therapist, like, hey, man, you're super tight on the front side. That's going to affect your mid-back. They can address a lot of the issues on the front side that are contributing to that backside issue. So, yeah, I mean, I think recreationally or semi-professionally or professionally, having access to different providers who can really uh, use their scope of practice and their expertise to make sure that you're operating at a fully efficient um, and maximal output for, you know, across the board, life and sport. Unfortunately, a lot of endurance athletes look at it as uh, I'm, I'm an endurance athlete. I'm healthy. I don't need this. And it's not a problem until it's a real problem. And I, I've seen as a bike fitter, I used to work on the floor at uh, Big Bang Bicycles in, in Pittsburgh. And I remember seeing a couple of people just watching them walk, just ask them a couple basic questions, you know, non-leading, very open-ended. Like, how do you feel in the morning when you get out of bed? Oh, yeah, I, I feel pretty good. Well, uh, any issues with your back or your knees? Oh yeah, my left knee. Oh really? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, when I'm riding, but I got this big cushy seat. So, and it's just, you know, people are more willing to spend a hundred, even $200 on a piece of something that they feel tangibly in their fingers versus the time and the money to go see a professional who can give them, you know, the change of, of the set of the sales uh, to help them get better. How do we as endurance athletes and as humans, uh, how do we need to look at using these professionals to help us in these smaller bits to allow us to kind of process like, hey, dude, it may not be a new set of wheels or a new jersey, but this is going to do far more for your riding than those fancy things. You know, I think unfortunately that moment doesn't come for most people until they're injured and on the recovery side of things. It's you know, keeping the foot on the gas and just moving forward and like, ah, it's just knee pain. I'll get a new seat. That seems to fix it. You know, that's a quick fix where fitness and exercise, it's definitely more long-term. Uh, you can't, like, you basically just rent fitness, right? You can't uh, get strong and then stay strong. You have to continually make investments in that fitness to get better. And it takes a while for the body to adapt to that input. And it needs a certain level of input 
consistently over time to even adapt and make those changes. Um, Dr. Andy Gelpin uh, does a lot of muscle physiology stuff um, in California. And he, he talks about, hey, it takes a lot of resources for the body to build and maintain muscle. So if you just do a one-off workout and you get super sore, your body's like, great, have fun with that soreness. Uh, but it's not going to dedicate any resources to building in muscle and making you stronger because it's just a one-off event versus uh, a smart, progressive exercise program over the course of say 12 weeks where now everybody's like, okay, I'm getting consistent input. I keep being asked to do these same things. I'm going to increase some water. I'm going to start, you know, uh, the muscle I'm going to start, uh, building, you know, making the muscle size a little bigger or, you know, really maximizing that muscle efficiency over time. That's the consistency piece. Um, I think regardless of what sports you're in, injury is usually the big separator there. Most people aren't thinking self-care and long-term stuff um, on the front end. It's, it's an afterthought. And unfortunately, most of the folks that reach out to me each week in the DMs, it's like, hey, I'm having issues with shin pain. You know, it's now a problem where they didn't really address maybe shin strength in their training because it seems silly to address like shin strength when you're <laughs> a training program. But those injuries now are threatening one, uh, the hike of a lifetime, or, you know, for a cyclist, if it's an Achilles issue or a knee issue or hip issue, I mean, that can derail you pretty big time. So, you know, having access to trainers, really having the forethought, like, okay, if I'm going to invest uh, a lot of financial resources, a lot of time, a lot of energy to hike 2,650 miles or, you know, bike my first century or whatever, whatever it is, you want to make sure that you're going to be able to enjoy that that adventure and not just endure it by constantly having to worry about, you know, aches, pains, injuries, you know, even ruining that hike or that, that cycling, you know, venture, if you're going through the Dolomites in Italy or whatever, like, man, you know, those once in a lifetime trips, the last thing you want to worry about are those issues. And if you can address your strength and, um, and learn some self-care issues before you go, that's where the money's at. And, it's hard because injury reduction, it's not really injury prevention. You can't really prevent injuries. They're just intrinsic with pretty much anything that you do. There's a little bit of risk involved, but you can reduce the risk of injury. The downside is you don't really know that injury reduction is working until you get out in your sport. And even then it's not entirely clear that the effort you've put in is actually paying off. I think the way that you really start to understand how how important that piece is that strength and training and self-care piece is, is when you're actually in the thick of it, when you're doing, you know, 25 to 30 miles of hiking and you're like, Hey, like I'm actually doing pretty good stacking these big days up time over time, over time, not having any muscle soreness. I'm managing what aches and pains do come up. I'm stretching my calves. I'm working my you know quads over with my trekking pole. I'm doing my downward dog stretches. Same with cycling. If you're you know, in you know, semi-pro, even recreational weekend warrior, you get out there, you do these big races and you come out the other side, either feel like you just got kicked out the spin cycle or you're like, you know what, actually pretty good. Those are indicators that the, the work that you're putting in is starting to pay off on the back end. We're, we're going to have to stop there because that's such a powerful point. I mean, that in and of itself, and that's been the theme here. And, you know, for me, for the athletes, people don't believe them in how little they're doing in the strength training to see these big results, because it's not these killer workouts uh, where they're sore. It's just, they do just enough. Like, yeah, I got to a seven today. Good. I could have done another set, but Lee, we definitely need to have you back, man. Cause there's clearly a, a deep well of knowledge and experience here. Um, you touched on a number of really important topics today. And again, I think twice today. Yeah. One, two, I said, stop the recording and go back and listen. And that's, that's <laughs> rare. So you really clearly have a deep well of knowledge. Uh, you mentioned Kelly Starrett having a lot of stuff out there, but so do you. Uh, can you tell the, the listeners where to find your content and how to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on Instagram and Facebook is where I'm most active. Instagram is at trailside underscore fitness. And then on Facebook, just at trailside fitness. Um, lots of videos up there, lots of stuff on self-care. Um, I've got some exercise videos coming up too. Um, as far as reaching out, I've, you know, trailsidefitness.com, you can reach me through there. Um, my DMs are always open. So if you guys have any questions or um, looking for a training program, anything like that, uh, more hiking specific, uh, happy to help you out there. 
Maybe if you just have hiking questions in general, man, send them my way. I'm always happy to help out. Um, I'm in the DMs every week, just giving virtual trail magic to hikers and other folks out there that are having some issues. Virtual trail magic. I love that, man. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lee, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning here to, to talk with us. And uh, uh, we'll have to set up the, the next time for you to come on here again soon. Uh, it's been a pleasure, man. I've learned a lot myself. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to, to connecting again soon. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.